Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Nicole Perry, Strategy Director of Digital Business Growth at 11FS. In today's episode, we're asking, how does innovation survive a recession? What do Airbnb, Disney, FedEx and IBM all have in common? Well, these business behemoths are all products of various financial crises. While their current economic issues will no doubt have many across the globe feeling worried, there are some who look at these times as a challenge, a puzzle to be solved and a chance to build something better than we've had before. So today we've put together a panel of experts to discuss what lessons can we learn from previous economic downturns, what are the current challenges to innovation right now, and how will this impact the future for many in financial services? We'll discuss all of this and more in today's show, but first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. Okay, so let's get started. As always, I am joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this super interesting topic. First of all, we have a FinTech Insider debut for Kat Muntaneo, Engineering Manager at 11FS. Welcome to the show, Kat. Can you give our audience a brief introduction to you and your role at 11FS? Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm an economist that turned engineering, so FinTech is a sweet spot for me. I mainly work on greenfield projects, build projects, but from time to time I do venture on the consultancy side of our business and I do help people look how they can build on their existing strengths. Excellent. Thank you, Kat. Quite uh, the combo there, uh, economist turned engineer. Um, so I'm sure you'll have a very interesting view um, from both, both those uh, sides today. Uh, and next up, we've got a very welcome return to FinTech Insider for Valentina Christensen. Director of Growth and Communications at Oak North. Welcome back, Val. Can you give our listeners a little more information about you and your role at Oak North, please? Yeah, sure. So thanks very much for having me back. And as you said, I head up our communications and growth function here at Oak North. I began working the business in the summer of 2015 and following a secondment later that year, joined full-time in 2016. So I've been with the business uh, not quite since the very beginning, but, but almost. And it's been amazing to see the growth over the years. Thanks, Val. And quite the growth journey that Oak North's been on, so I'm sure your, your role's been very interesting over that time. And finally, we have Jake. Last but no means least, uh, it's also a FinTech Insider debut for you. Jake Johnson is VP of Brand and Strategy at Versapay, and we'd love to hear a little bit more about you, Jake, and the background of you at Versapay. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, as you said, I'm the VP of brand uh, and content at VersaPay. Um, we're the leader in accounts receivable, um, collaborative accounts receivable. The VersaPay collaborative AR network is the first solution that connects the APAR teams to empower the genius of those teams and uh, bridges the gaps between those suppliers and buyers so that they can have a shared digital experience um, and uh, move along the pay, invoice to um, payment process as quickly as possible. Lots of efficiency comes out of that, but most importantly, we create a really great uh, customer experience. So I've been with the company for about uh, one and a half years, and uh, we're just at the cusp of what's a really exciting 
and new space in fintech on on the account receivable side. Brilliant, thanks, Jake. Such an important area um, for your customers, isn't it? And uh, for those of our for for our listeners that aren't as familiar with Versape, can you just let us know what markets you operate in, and we'd love to know where you're based as well. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm personally based in Phoenix, Arizona, but we have headquarters in Toronto, a U.S. headquarters in Atlanta, we have offices in uh, London and in Amsterdam, and um, <clears throat> and what was the second the first part of that question? Just where you were based, which we, we you've answered. So so thank you very much. Um, yeah, quite quite the geographical spread there. Um, be interesting to hear your thoughts on you know maybe how that might how innovation within a recession might differ between all of those uh, locations that Versapay are based. So thank you for that. All right, well let's start by putting some perspective on the current situation by looking at the impact of previous recessions on the financial sector. So Kat, you recently wrote a piece for 11FS about how the financial crisis of 2008 really set the scene for the fintech boom that we've seen since. Can you explain how that worked for us? Um, yeah, I think that it was mainly good timing. The financial crisis in 2008 actually spilled very quickly and turned into a, an economic crisis. Financial crises usually affect paper wealth, but economic crises actually affect everyone in the entire economy. So at that time, people were losing their jobs, were losing their houses. They were seeing rescue deals going into bonuses, and naturally they wanted an alternative. At the exact same time, new tech was popping up, like the iPhone. So suddenly we did have an alternative. I think that that is the main catalyst for the change. Thanks, Kat. And, and do you think that the fintech uh, environment that we're in just now and all of the offerings that we've got, do you think that would have been possible without that first downturn? So I think it's definitely possible because one of our most iconic fintechs of today is PayPal that was founded in 1998. And the financial crisis was basically just the accelerator for this. We probably would have seen a big boom, but slower and it wouldn't have been so impressive. Okay, that's, that's an interesting perspective. Val, what, what's your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's it's definitely, as you say, the, the technology side of things, the the proliferation of the iPhone and sort of, well, launched in 2007, but really was seemingly in every home by about 2008. Um, but there was also a huge change in terms of, of regulation, right? So we saw um, the, the FSA split and become the PRA and FCA. We saw a, a new competition mandate uh, and all of these things helped to... Uh, open up the market, reduce the barriers to entry, and make it possible for uh, you know new new fintechs to come to market. Oak North Bank, as as an example, third new bank in 150 years, or the third new license granted in 150 years back in 2015, and that certainly wouldn't have been possible had it not been for the catalyst uh, of the crisis. And then I think coupled with that, you obviously had a huge uh, decrease in in consumer trust in traditional financial services. So uh, that created more of a willingness to actually try some of the new players um, who perhaps wouldn't have had the ability to gain the market share that they did um, if consumers were incredibly satisfied uh, with their with their existing uh, bank or existing financial services provider. Um, so it was really a perfect storm. You know, the right changes in regulation, reduction in consumer trust, um, new technology uh, coming to market, uh, you know, which which all helped to to enable fintech to really be born and thrive. Yeah, totally agree. The p- perfect storm is probably the 
perfect um, kind of sum up of, of everything that was happening. And uh, I recently read a piece from Oak North's own CEO, co-founder Rishi Kosla, um, who wrote about how, you know, fintech, the crown jewel of the UK tech se- sector, really rose from the, the ashes of this great recession. And it was a really interesting article because he kind of touched on the qualities of entrepreneurship that really thrive in, in sort of stress situations. And he makes reference to his father and how how he was an inspiration for building Oak North. And Jake, I was just wondering if, if you had any thoughts on what happens to people in these environments? Are are they become more risk averse or are they more driven? You know, what is the impact on the type of entrepreneurs that we might see coming out of, of these types of recessions? Well, certainly at the uh, outset of the crisis, people were much more risk averse. At the time, I was uh, a financial analyst, an acquisitions analyst for a commercial real estate firm. We were buying, uh, you know, large apartment buildings. Um, and what we were finding was that uh, there were really great deals available because the only funding available was for uh, for public housing at the time here in the States. So you couldn't get loans for any other deals, but you could still get loans for apartment buildings because affordable housing is a really key component of the, you know, the American policy. And so we were finding really great margin deals, but what we were having trouble doing was going out and collecting the equity that we needed in order to fund those deals. Um, Eventually they were able to do it. and, And that company uh, really prospered on the backside of the the crisis because they were willing to go out and take some risks. Of course, fortunes are made in downturns, but most people are too scared to you know go after those opportunities because there's so much uncertainty in the market. But I think what happens is you have a great you know shift of wealth in a crisis, um, and and so there's people who who lose their shorts in it because they're they're scared, they're risk averse. There's also a subset of entrepreneurs and investors who go, hey, this is where the real opportunities are, and they go make their moves, uh, and then you see this, you know, this incredible shift of wealth. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's an interesting one for our listeners to reflect on. Is kind of like where do they fit on that spectrum? And we'll, we'll come back. We'll, we'll we'll come to talk a little bit about how might this looming recession. Um, impact the choices that those in those who lead or work or are launching fintech. What will the impact be? But for now, I just I just wanted to touch on kind of what we think the lasting impact of two thousand and eight and the years beyond that was. Um, what do you think is the the lasting impact of innovation? Do we think it was the rise of neo banks? Was it the kind of build of new financial trust that you touched on, Val? Um, or was it something more specific? Kat, what do you think this kind of lasting impact? What what did the 2008 financial crisis leave us with? Well, it did leave us with fintechs as they are today. They were barely born in there, and now they are also big enough that they are reacting almost like other companies. Um, it also produced a lot of um, material for us to study. So it was the first time that we had a very big financial crisis, turned economic, it was global. So we could see and analyze what were the companies that went bust and what were the ones that actually survived. And some of them thrived. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And Val, you mentioned trust earlier. Um, do you think we're in a position, a different position now in terms of trust? Or are our customers' relationships with financial institutions different as a result of the 2008 financial crisis? I think, you know, the fact is there's there's always going to be a little bit, I think it will be 
many, many decades. And probably this any generation that can still remember the financial crisis will probably always have a bit of uh, a bit of a trust issue. Um, you know, you only have to read the press recently about the big banks making bumper profits. Um, and you'll see that there's very little sympathy about taxing them more. So I think, um, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of a, a trust issue. Where you're seeing more now, I think, is sort of a lack of trust in some of the, you know, the areas such as crypto. Obviously, we've seen numerous scandals uh, regarding, um, you know, crypto businesses that have gone bust uh, in this uh, in this period. And also some of, you know, those those um, some of those larger, more established fintechs that, uh, you know, as Kat says, are behaving a little bit like traditional players. I think to a documentary I saw recently on Netflix, the GameStop documentary, which was really fascinating and highly recommended. And there's, you know, a big chunk of it um, talking about the backlash that, that Robin Hood faced uh, during the whole GameStop saga um, and that, you know, that it, they had lost trust from consumers. I think where you're going to see more of the lasting legacy is really more about how consumers interact with financial services i.e. on their mobile or on the go, um, and how much of financial services has been democratized uh, since 2008. Um, and, and as a result of that, so many more people are aware of their personal finances, and it's much more front of mind than perhaps I think it was back then. Yeah, some of those references that you've included, I suppose, show that trust isn't something that's established and then sustained. You know, it's very much, uh, it can go up and down over time. And I think that it would be very easy to just be complacent and assume that financial institutions and fintechs are trusted when actually one must earn that trust and, and continue to do that through engagement, very good practices and ultimately looking out for customers. Jake, looking at this from a purely fintech perspective, did the last two and a half years leave us with a stronger fintech scene than we had prior to 2020? Um, so considering uh, the pandemic and the impact that had and the adoption of digital, do you think we're in a stronger position now than we are we were previous? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I also think it just kind of depends on what we mean by stronger. Um, there's been, you know, an abrupt shift online for financial transactions. And so there's a need for digitizing um, both on the co- for the companies and the internal stakeholders. Uh, there's a report from Amplitude that the number of daily active users of fintech products has grown 337% since January of 2020. I think, you know, a lot of this was driven by what we might call a bubble in crypto, um, dare we say. Uh, My Coinbase account, you know, certainly makes it feel like a bubble at this point in time. But these are really highly innovative mechanisms with high risk. And, and so some people have been losing their shorts. So I think we're starting to see a little bit of a drawback in terms of trust of FinTech just because of, you know, all the speculation that was going on and, um, and how much money people have lost over the course of the last year or so. And of course, uh, CB Insights just came out with their state of FinTech report. Uh, valuations are way down. You know, there's not nearly as many unicorns and those types of things. So it's a little bit of a volatile time right now. But I think more than anything, the pandemic really opened up the possibilities of fintechs to proliferate in areas where they can prove true value. Um, case in point, our space and account receivables automation, you know, a couple of years ago was still highly paper-based and manual. Um, people might not know this, but it's mostly paper checks, paper invoices, manual uh, remittance matching and all that kind of stuff at these large companies. We're talking thousands upon thousands of transactions every month. Um, but all of a sudden the pandemic hit, nobody's in the offices and then checks are sitting on desks and cash flow was all 
uh, jammed up. Uh, it was really quite a big pain point for CFOs who to that point weren't motivated to digitize the back office because uh, things were working just fine the way they'd always worked. Uh, now suddenly they were faced with the proposition that they couldn't uh, keep cash flow going in the business. So we think internally that the market probably matured by a decade or more over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. Um, but at the same time, um, the, the, there's growing demand, um, but there's also a big learning curve. So lots of people are looking to automate old and outdated processes rather than thinking through this time as an opportunity to truly transform the way in which they're approaching business through technology. And I think that's going to hurt people uh, over the long haul if they don't take the opportunity to, to really sit down and go, hey, let's rethink how we've done things based on where the technology stands today. Yeah, I wonder if the progress that we made throughout the pandemic will continue to accelerate or or maybe slightly plateaued or or even decline in some instances, you know, with the challenges that we're facing coming into the recession. Val, I'd love to know your thoughts on how serious do we think these challenges are? I mean, fintechs have had nearly half a trillion dollars knocked off the cumulative peak valuation since the start of 2022. Is, is, this a, is this going to be a really challenging time? It is going to be a really challenging time, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, we've had a a bull market for the last 12 years, the longest bull market in, in history. And many people have got used to the idea of money being incredibly cheap and there being so much liquidity in the market. Um, a lot of really bad ideas, actually, that should probably never have got funded have been funded. Um, and what this will hopefully bring is a correction in the market, um, You know, where you'll end up with uh, the businesses that are left behind and those that are coming to market being much stronger, more resilient businesses that are solving genuine problems. Um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, there are a number of great businesses that were founded in downturns. And I think, um, you know, we'll absolutely see that. Uh, and we'll see some of the larger, more established fintechs, the Oak North, the Starling Banks, um, you know, where 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 it makes sense making strategic acquisitions and then new players coming coming to market as well. So you'll see that sort of maturing in the market, which uh, which is a very good thing. Yeah. And then, I mean, this could potentially be the real first stress test of fintech, you know, since its rise. Um, and interesting that you said that some bad ideas have been funded. I'd love to know both of Val, we'll come to you first and then Jake. Uh, on that on that kind of point around bad ideas being funded, how should innovation respond to customers' needs? You know, is it are we solving for absolutely crucial problems? Should that be the only focus on fintech, or are ideas that solve for the experience layer of fintech are they still valid? How do you think that fintech should be sort of treating new product development, new feature development, and response to customer needs? Well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a, a push and pull because you could have some which, uh, you know, you, you're pushing products in front of customers saying, we think this is something that based on your age, your, you know, your where you're based, um, you know, where you are in, in your life stage, we think this is, is a product that you might be interested in. Um, and that's perhaps because they know something um, about you or perhaps they don't. And they're sort of just, just uh, putting the feelers out there. And other times, you know, it might be that you're reacting to something that's happened uh, with the customer. Perhaps you found out they've, you know, recently had a kid or, um, you know, perhaps are pregnant. And that may, that might mean that they need 
a certain new type of insurance or, um, you know, investment in uh, junior ISA or whatever it might be. Um, so I think it's a combination. You have to sort of push the right amount of products so you're not being annoying and equally be reacting, but not reacting so much uh, that people feel a bit creeped out <laughs> that you seem to know a huge amount about what's going on in their life. So finding that balance uh, and then tailoring the products and services, um, you know, that you bring to that customer, um, you know, is is really where I think the future of, of innovation and really the future of financial services will be much more personalization, um, where it's where it's based on the very specific, unique needs of those individual customers. Yeah, I mean, prioritization of all of these things was already difficult enough, never mind in such a volatile environment where customers, whether that be business or personal customers, have so many things to think about and decisions can be arguably much harder in an economic environment like this. Jake, I'd be interested to hear how Versapay kind of weighs this up. How how do you make decisions around these things and will that change going into um, this difficult environment? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to do both. I, I come, I've been working in design and UX for a long time at this point. And one of the, the principles of UX is it's uh, the sweet spot is the intersection between organizational objectives and customer needs. Right. And so one of the things uh, that you, you absolutely have to do is hit the table stakes items that your customers want taken care of. So if you look at accounts receivable automation, most CFOs are focused on uh, efficiency and cash flow acceleration. Right? We did a survey with Wakefield of a thousand C-suite executives recently on AR digitization. Uh, it was interesting because not surprisingly, about 90% of the C-suite said they're only as good as their customer experience. But as we dug deeper into the questionnaire and the data and looked at the things that they were doing on the AR side, it was solely around process automation, you know, e-invoicing, e-payment, that kind of stuff. Um, but this was despite the fact that the, the things that they identified themselves that really cost them the most time and money were things that process automation can't really fix, right? So like lost invoices, orders are wrong, those types, you know, disputes, mm -hmm. those types of things. So there's actually a real need for it, that people to people connection. So we always say, you know, B2B is just P2P, right? It's just, you still need that people to people connection, but they're not thinking about that, right? So it's our job to come in and go, hey, we're gonna solve these baseline uh, things that you need solved, like cash flow acceleration and efficiency in the I2C process. Um, but we're also going to show you that there's a better way in which to do this through technology, which is we're going to connect you with the AP departments and the AR departments together. We're going to connect the buyers and suppliers to be able to have conversations and take what we would call the last mile, those 10% of payments that can't really be automated or we can't use AI and machine learning to fix. And we're going to make sure that we make it as easy as possible for those people to come together. And that's a customer experience issue. And those people on the AP side or on the buyer side, they're used to a consumer type transaction experience that's never existed in B2B before. We're providing that experience. Um, but we weren't asked to provide that. That's our point of view on the market. And it turns out that it works really, really well. But we wouldn't ever be able to bring our point of view if we didn't solve the issues that the customers wanted to solve to begin with, so you got to do both. Yeah, I suppose that comes back to the trust point as well, doesn't it? And I, I absolutely love your definition of the sweet spot, you know, strategic objectives versus 
solving for customer needs. And I was just thinking that you could kind of argue that banks, maybe heritage banks, went too far in the strategic objective uh, direction. And some fintech and neo banks went too far in the customer needs uh, kind of side of that coin. And actually what you have is this massive mismatch between a health, having a healthy business. You either have customer problems that are unmet, but healthy metrics, or you have the new bank fintech uh, input, which is great experiences, but largely unprofitable. Kat, I'd love to come to you to, to have a chat about build. So is it easier to build new products now than it was uh, you know, kind of in 2008 and, and in the years that we saw the rise of fintech? What's your thoughts? I think it's definitely easier now. Uh, first of all, tech is not extremely old. And uh, definitely open finance is not, is not old. At the time when the first fintech started, they had to build everything from scratch. But now we basically have almost a selection, not complete selection, but a selection of mix and match. We can pick from providers that, you know, help you with issuing cards, uh, customer identity and fraud. Uh, you can do data aggregation. So it's definitely easy nowadays to build something that it was 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, definitely. And your point about off the shelf is bang on, uh, you know, especially with kind of like the rise of embedded finance, that would not be possible were it not for the architecture of some institutions where something can be developed and built and then lifted and dropped into different journeys, different customer contexts. And it's, it's just made me have a think about buy now, pay later. Um, you know, that is the essence of, of utilising kind of what was done before. Do we think that that's the key innovation of this current downturn? You know, what, what do we think? was Is that the star, the winner of, um, you know, the last 10 plus years or so? Val, what's your thoughts? Or do you think there's something else that's uh, stealing the show? I mean, the last 10 plus years, I think it's hard to argue that because by now, pay later, I guess, in, in its current form, probably hasn't existed for that long. I would say it was definitely a winner of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, a lot of people were stuck at home with less to do. Um, you know, they they had more disposable income in a lot of cases because they were, you know, they, they weren't out socializing, they weren't traveling. Um, so they perhaps had that bit of extra cash to spend. Um, I think in, you know, in terms of the current situation and the current economic downturn, um, I would hope that, uh, you know, that, that that wouldn't be the case. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of people will be, you know, will be tightening their purse strings, watching their budgets more closely, especially with, you know, rising energy bills, rising food bills. They're not likely to be spending as much on sneakers or, you know, the latest fashion. And, and I say those examples only because about 43% of people who have used Buy Now, Pay Later have used it for, for clothing or fashion. Um, I think in the in the current downturn, you're probably, um, you know, if you do see people using it, unfortunately, it's probably going to be for more, you know, essential household things, groceries, that's that kind of thing, and that can obviously create a bit of a, bit of a vicious cycle. Um, I would say we could probably have a whole series of podcasts on whether it's good or bad for consumers. Um, so I would say definitely a winner of the uh, the pandemic. Um, but who will be the fintech winners and the other types of, of businesses that will come out uh, from this recession on top uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, we often have a debate about Dino Pilates, a very healthy one, I may add. Um, 
on the show and I hope that we don't go down the innovation garden path where fintechs are only looking to innovate to sort of exploit customers' difficult circumstances at the moment and by now Pilates is one of those danger zones. But um, yeah, as you say, could have a, a whole other podcast on that. Yeah, I mean, there was that um, one example that, that came to mind, which was um, uh, Zilch earlier this year, which was which was criticised for letting customers pay their energy bills with buy now, pay later. Um, and I think exactly to your point, you know, it's about um, finding that balance, making sure that you're sort of you're helping customers in those tough times without being exploitative, um, which which will be a, a real challenge for a lot of businesses, a lot of fintechs as we go into this cycle. Yeah. Absolutely. Great example. Great example here. Thank you, Val. All right. We are just going to take a quick pause here and we'll be back very shortly. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Just add your job and the purple hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so we talked a little bit about what's happened in the past and I'd love to get your guys' views on what the future might hold. Kat, you wrote uh, in your article that this period will separate the fintechs that are built to last from those that are not. What qualities do you think those are that will differentiate the built to last versus those who won't? I think that probably it goes back to preparedness and how prepared they were for the unforeseen. So those that actually took on a lot of debt, probably they will be more um, susceptible to the recession. Uh, It's also about the decision making. I think that companies that are a little bit more decentralized and they allow some decisions to be made by people that are closer to their clients, it will be easier for them and they will be a bit more nimble. Um, works for, uh, workforce management, usually you have to cut costs during this time, but if you try to cut costs in the form of human costs, you will pay for it later. So in the case of a rebound, it's a little bit harder. You have to reinvest in training, things like that. And of course, the last one, I think it's technology, because during times of downturn, it's cheaper to build. Contrary to popular belief, it's like there are a few more people on the market, so you can be a little bit more choosy uh, if you invest in the right type of tech that will help your company because you can do a little bit more automation. Probably you can be invest a little bit more in analytics so you have a better grip of what's happening in your in your company. So I think that somewhere around these four areas are the fintechs that will have a better chance of surviving and probably flourishing. And what about the backend functionality? You mentioned tech. What what are the differences with backend functionality for those that have built for robustness and um, resilience in times of stress versus maybe some decisions that have been made in a rushed fashion or to get to market quickly? Do you think we'll see any differences in the success of fintechs depending on their, their decisions around build? 
I think it's important to note what do you mean by fintech because the original fintechs were new. That means that they didn't only build a mobile application that was built on old technology, they built everything from scratch. So those don't really have that issue. But then there came a wave of fintechs, but they were actually owned by larger companies. So they didn't go down the full stack. They were mainly front-ends built on um, older technologies. Those probably need a little bit more investment to make them flexible enough to change to what probably will be a change in customer um, behavior. Yeah, that flexibility is so important in times like this, isn't it? Because your roadmap of what you were planning to build may completely have to change to suit what's happening with, with end consumers at the moment and re-pivot some of your product decisions. So you're right, having an architecture that supports that pivoting and supports that reactivity will really turbocharge the fintechs, turbocharge fintechs that have that um, and allow them to keep at pace and, and stay close to customers. Well, you know what they say. Two things about uh, fintech crashes is that one, the next one will come and two, that the next one will be different for sure. So this one will probably be different from the last one. Flexibility is extremely important from that point of view because the last one was cheap credit. So as Val was saying, that buy now, pay later, it became huge, but it became huge in a market where people were encouraged to borrow money because it was cheap and it made sense. But now with raising inflation, all the central banks are raising their rates, which means that basically from now on, we might get to a point where is it makes sense to have savings <laughs> in a normal account because they will not be eroded. They will have fintechs that were actually looking only at debt will have to completely pivot towards a different product. Yeah. Thanks, Kat. That's a, a great example of where fintechs have focused on on one agenda item, you know, may find some sticky points. I just wanted to touch on some of the other things you mentioned, you know, resourcing, funding and um, product. You know, do we think that uh, this environment will make fintechs more disciplined? Val, have you, what's your opinion on that? And are you seeing any changes at Oak North in terms of decision making? So I definitely think it will make fintechs more disciplined. Um, that's also being very much driven by the investors as well, who are demanding that these businesses build profitable and sustainable business models. Um, and again, that's no bad thing. It's it's a good thing for the market. Um, Oak North probably a bit of an exception because we've been profitable uh, pretty much since year one. Um, we'll reach cash flow break even in 11 months after launch. So um you know, so so we've always been focused on building a robust business model. Uh, you know, but I think um, to Kat's point, there's a very very fair point. You know, around the the generations uh, that have grown up with using fintechs and using um, financial services on their phones, and many of them don't really know how to operate in this kind of market. I mean, even myself, uh, you know, before this year, um, I'd only ever known interest rates at the highest of zero point seven five percent. So exactly to Kat's point, very much um, told to invest, to spend, to not save, uh, because, you know, you'll often um, not be making a very good return uh, in terms of, of interest. So so I think, you know, there's a whole mindset shift that needs to to take place, um, you know, which which. Uh, the, those fintechs that can that can obviously adapt to, and do that and bring those new products and services to market are the ones that will that will win. 
I think probably what we're going to see out of out of this this recession is just like in the 2008 financial crisis you know the businesses that were born there were were fintechs and that's because it was a financial crisis that then later became an economic crisis and as as was mentioned earlier in terms of people losing their jobs people losing their homes this crisis was obviously brought on by a number of different factors um you know the ongoing war in in Ukraine uh you know the secure energy security issues that that's created the supply chain issues that's created the food security issues that's created so i think we're going to see a lot of the businesses coming out of this recession with a focus on on those on solving those kinds of problems so food security energy security uh, sustainability particularly environmental sustainability um and again that's incredibly positive and uh, and very exciting to see those businesses coming out of it that's an excellent point is that you know there is a question of have we solved for some of the most challenging financial problems with the fintechs that we've got available and actually will it be other types of tech to solve other lifestyle problems other immediate you know and that kind of maslow's hierarchy of needs actually things like having a roof over your head and your home being warm and you having enough to eat will innovation actually be you know really focused on solving for that rather than continuing to enhance people's financial lives and having having said that um we talked a little bit about crypto earlier and Jake, you, you brought that up. Uh, you know, having just mentioned this kind of uh, spaghetti, all of these kind of spaghetti mess of problems that people are going to face, do you think that it will put perspective on crypto and the excitement and the hype and all of the uh, funding that's gone into that industry? Do you think that that will change or do you think that it will continue to advance? Well, I'll start by saying I'm not a crypto expert, but I can speak as someone who, you know, has done some investing in, in crypto and followed, you know, uh, some folks who are much more into it on Twitter and, you know, those types of things. I've certainly observed personally um, that there is a, a very loud vocal group of people on social media who've talked a lot about crypto and its promises. But when you, I would venture to say that if you talk to the day-to-day person, they've probably soured quite a bit on crypto. Uh, if they went and they, and they started buying at the top of the market and those types of things, and they watched their, their portfolios you know, totally crash over the last year or so, they're probably thinking, uh, well, this sounds like a lot of hype, you know, like tulip bulbs or something. That, and so there's gonna, for me, the more interesting things on the crypto side are not um, you know, speculative coin purchases and those types of things have been driven by the, the consumer side. But obviously the uh, decentralized finance uh, aspects on contracts and collateralization is really interesting to me. I don't uh, know nearly enough as I should, but I'm really intrigued by the possibilities of being able to speed up B2B transactions through collateralization mm. uh, on the crypto side. That's uh, an area that I don't know how much has been explored on that. I'm sure plenty mo- more than I know, but it's something that's, you know, really germane to what we're doing that I would love to follow and, and know more about. Those are the types of innovations that I think are going to be important. Um, it was mentioned earlier, you know, uh, buy now, pay later. We used to call it layaway when I was a kid and we, it was the same idea, you know, um, but it's really exploitive. And a lot of this technology can be exploitive. I think the thing that's going to take you through a recession is, are you solving true problems and helping helping people uh, in their time of need? Those are the technologies that are 
uh, going to move forward. And I don't think uh, speculative coin purchases and those types of things are going to really mm. do that over the recession. But there's some really fundamental um, challenges in the financial system that crypto could come along and help solve. And I think those are the businesses that will thrive. Yeah. And, you know, the point on, on crypto being used for some of the business problems that you're trying to tackle, it might be that actually we see that industry developing with being more use case led rather than more generalist and broad fashion, which we've kind of seen to date. Okay, we are going to have a quick fire round, having talked about everything that we've talked about. I'd love to know from each of you, how does innovation survive a recession? Val, what's your thoughts on that? How does innovation survive a recession? I don't think innovation survives a recession. I think it thrives from it. Nice one. I like it. Very strong, very bold. Love it. Jake, what about you? Find the balance between customer needs and business objectives and provide real value. Great. I think that's a solid takeaway for everyone that's listening uh, and a reminder that that is what we should all be doing uh, when we're building. And Kat, what about you? I think it has to first find the cause of the recession and try to skim around it and source it. Nice one. All right. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. And thank you guys uh, so much for joining me. I'd love to know where people can find out more about you and the companies that you work for. Kat? Well, you can find me personally on LinkedIn and, of course, on the 11FS website. Great. Thank you. Val? Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Val Christensen. If you want to find out more about Oak North Bank, it's oaknorth.co.uk. And if you want to find out more about our SaaS business, it's oaknorth.com. Nice one. Jake? You can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you want to know about VersaPay, you can go to versapay.com. We also have the Wakefield report up on our homepage there if anybody wanted to look at that research. Great, thank you. And I'd love to hear from anyone that would like to get in touch with me at nicole.perry at 11fs.com or you can find me on LinkedIn under Nicole Perry. So thank you very much for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others find the show. And as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just searching for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or we'd love to hear from you on email at podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Until the next time.